Has the jury uh, reached verdicts? It was October 5th, 2018, just a little more than three years ago, when a jury in Chicago brought back a verdict in the murder case against police officer Jason Van Dyke. We, the jury, find the defendant, Jason Van Dyke, guilty of second-degree murder. We, the jury, find the defendant, Jason Van Dyke, guilty of aggravated battery with a firearm, first shot. For many, especially activists in Laquan's family, the guilty verdict was some measure of justice. We, the jury, find the defendant, Jason Van Dyke, guilty of aggravated battery with a firearm, 16 shots. Like many other police shootings of young black men in the city of Chicago, there was little attention on Laquan's killing at first. The case had been hidden by police, by the city. The video of the killing was kept from the public until it wasn't. The officers are responding to somebody with a knife in a, a crazed condition. There is going to be a narrative. That becomes the truth. Police say they had no choice but to shoot a 17-year-old boy who threatened them with a knife. say this was a clear-cut case of self-defense. There was a machinery in place by which these stories disappear. And the judge, he just read his decision. I ordered for the video of of Laquan McDonald to be released in five business day. That's all I remember. I have absolutely no doubt that this video will tear at the hearts of all Chicagoans. The moment the tape drops, we're taking the streets. Oh, mama, mama, can't you see? Mama, mama, can't you see? What CPD has done to me? What CPD has done to me? Tonight, we created this space for black rage to exist and to not be pacified. We don't want no motherfuckers telling us to be calm and be peaceful in a moment that is not fucking peaceful. Laquan McDonald's death was totally avoidable. With these charges, we are bringing a full measure of justice that this demands. We're here today because a defendant shot Laquan McDonald 16 times when it was completely unnecessary. I said, why the F are they still shooting him when he's on the ground? I might be looking at the possibility of spending the rest of my life um, in prison for, you know, doing my job as I was trained as a Chicago police officer. What happened was a tragedy. It's not a murder. I certainly have to take in consideration all the feelings that are involved here today and during throughout the whole trial. And I think Mr. McMahon said it uh, in closing arguments in the case in chief, this is a tragedy for both sides. So this is not easy, and I don't expect it to be easy. uh, My findings are an appropriate sentence would be 81 months in the Illinois Department of Corrections, two years mandatory supervised release. 81 months. Because of the way the state calculates so-called good time credits, Van Dyke would spend a little less than three and a half years behind bars. Some activists were heartbroken by the light sentence. It's never going to end. We keep fighting for the same stuff. It keeps happening. There's no justice for us at all. It just keeps happening. It's just like, what do they want us to do? 
I don't know how to feel right now other than like I'm extremely angry. It's just it's just so sad. It's just like where is the justice? I, it's like I don't have it in me to go riot. I don't have it in me because that doesn't do anything. I, I'm like, I feel myself getting so hot. I, I can't. Van Dyke's attorney, Dan Herbert, spoke to reporters in the courthouse lobby and summed up the officer's reaction to the sentence. He truly felt great. I mean, he was not just relieved. He... He was, he was happy. It was the first time I've seen the guy, honestly, since, um, since this whole ordeal started, where he was happy. You know, he's certainly not happy about going to jail. He's certainly not happy about missing his family, but he's happy about the prospect of life ahead of him. Our last episode dropped after Van Dyke was sentenced. Now, as he's expected to be released to a halfway house on Thursday, February 3rd, we wanted to bring you an update. Laquan's family is, of course, still grieving their loss, and they are at odds over the way forward. Chicago is still living in the aftermath of the shooting and trial, and there's a growing chorus of voices calling for Van Dyke to be tried again for killing McDonald, this time in federal court. From WBEZ Chicago and the Chicago Tribune, this is 16 Shots, the police shooting of Laquan McDonald. I'm Jen White. Laquan's body laid right here. That's where his body was at. Marvin Hunter is a relative of Laquan McDonald. He's a pastor. He has a small church on the west side of Chicago. It's where the family had Laquan's funeral. Our reporter, Patrick Smith, went out there this week to check in with the man who acted as the family's spokesman throughout Van Dyke's murder trial. Grace Memorial Missionary Baptist Church has no windows except a few rows of thick glass blocks, one shaped like a cross. The building's on a small corner lot of a partially abandoned section of Chicago's K-Town neighborhood. The block is dotted with vacant lots. There's a scrap metal yard nearby. Inside the church, there are about 200 metal and fabric chairs lined up facing a raised stage with a pulpit, a drum set, and a banner that reads, When There Is No Vision, The People Perish. It was here that Hunter presided over Laquan's funeral. Hundreds and hundreds of young black boys and girls were in this room. My family members, they were packed in here because there were so many young people. And I saw the shock and the hurt in them and the love they had for this boy, who I knew as my great nephew, but didn't really have a, you know, it wasn't a kid that I bounced on my knee. His had more relationship actually with his mom. I loved his mom. She has an infectious smile. And he had one. I learned after his death how he loved to make people laugh. He was a rapper, and they liked to hear him rap and so on and so forth. And he had this deep love for his grandmother. Hunter says he remembers looking out over the coffin at those young people. People were angry, and they wanted revenge. And God began to speak to me about that, the difference in revenge and justice. And so I tried to articulate to them why justice was better at this time than revenge. How 
uh, revenge belongs to God. Justice is what we should do here, and we should allow God to do the rest. Hunter thought they had achieved justice when the jury read its guilty verdicts. The man, who was armed and empowered by the state and then murdered Laquan McDonald, was being held responsible for what he'd done. But then, Judge Gaughan sentenced the boy's killer to what would amount to just a few years in prison. And it didn't feel like justice anymore. There are tons of black men that are in prison now for committing murder, as Jason Van Dyke did. When Jason Van Dyke went to jail, he went to jail as a white man. When Jason Van Dyke was sentenced, the judge, although he didn't break the law, he thumbed his nose at the law. This judge showed that he could care less about the heinousness of this crime that had been committed against Laquan McDonald. And he showed his prejudice, his prejudice in saying, I like white people more than I do black people. So because of that, here's what I'm going to do. I am not going to see this good white man go and waste his entire life in prison. Now, that's the total opposite of when a black man is sentenced. So he gave him a sentence that would give him another chance at life. And he had the right to do that as the judge. But the truth of the matter is, how do we, I think the better question is, how do we stop that? Do we stop that by being angry and asking for revenge against Jason Van Dyke? Or do we stop it by changing the laws that exist so that we can change the way that the police police us? Hunter is outraged that Van Dyke is getting out after such a short amount of time locked up. But he also says he accepts it. It's out of his hands, and he's not looking for vengeance. Listen, Jason Van Dyke got out of jail in three and a half years, but he hadn't got out of judgment. The Bible that I believe in say every man must appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Jason don't get away. He got to answer God. My prayer is, because I don't think nobody should go to hell. No one deserves to go to hell. I pray that he became a changed man and repented. And I believe if he repent, God will forgive him. Forget Reverend Hunter. Forget the Hunter family. If God forgives him, he gets to live life and life eternal. Other members of the family are not as okay with Van Dyke getting out as Hunter. His faith has given him peace. But some of Laquan's relatives want justice here on earth. And three years and some change behind bars just isn't cutting it for them. We know, as we've been told on February 3rd, Jason Van Dyke is to be released from prison. Last week, a group of activists, pastors, and politicians held a press conference at Reverend Jesse Jackson's Rainbow Push headquarters on Chicago's south side. It's our position that there should be a thorough and full investigation in the civil rights violations of Laquan McDonald. If you're in agreement with that, put your hands together if you're in agreement with that. Up on stage, alongside the leaders in suits, were Laquan's aunt and grandmother, still wearing their winter coats like they were anxious to bolt for the door. Near the end of the press conference, after the preachers and politicians had spoken, Laquan's grandma, Tracy Hunter, stepped up to the mic. He don't deserve to get out, period. The press conference was part of an ongoing push for federal charges to be brought against Van Dyke to get him locked up again. The pain and the suffering that I had endured and my daughter had endured, you know, it's just, um, it's just unbearable. 
And it just hurts so bad that, you know, uh, we have to go through this here and knowing this man finna walk and go home to his family. Because if the table was turned, my grandson would have never saw the light of day. The main force behind the push for federal charges is activist Will Calloway. He's the guy who originally sued the city to release the video of McDonald's killing. God sent me an angel. And that was Mr. Will Calloway in his staff. You know, we need to do we need to get to work. That's all. I'm not a big speaker when it's time to get busy. I feel like it's time to get busy. We all know what happened on January 19, 2019. Jason Van Dyke was unjustly sentenced to 81 months in prison. That's not fair. That's not just. We're calling on our federal government to intervene. There's no time to be passive. This sends a clear and direct message to every awful law enforcement officer all across the country that Jason Van Dyke is released. He is the epitome of everything that is wrong with law enforcement in our country. We need to make sure we hold him accountable. And, and again, Laquan McDonald is not an isolated incident when it comes to Chicago police. You understand? Almost all of Laquan McDonald's family avoided talking to the press in the years after his death. Some of them are speaking out now because they just can't believe their loved one's killer is about to be free. Laquan's aunt, Tanisha Hunter, was up on stage with her mom, Tracy, at the Rainbow Push event. Until a few weeks ago, she didn't even know Van Dyke was about to get out of prison. She had been outraged when Van Dyke's sentence was handed down in 2019, thought it was way too short. But she hadn't been tracking the date, didn't think it would be this year, let alone in a few weeks. She was stunned when she found out. Um, I was here at my house. My daughter screenshot it, and she sent it to my phone. Like, dang, it went back so quick. Ain't finna get out already. I was shocked. I was like, just seeing her stuck, like, is, is, is this a dream? Like I said, is this really happening? Tanisha Hunter says she helped raise Laquan in her grandma's house. They called him Bun-Bun. She still carries the pain of losing him. That was a hurt that I, I won't like to sit down with nobody. I felt hurt. It was pain, like pain. Every day waking up crying. Every day wishing that I wish my, I wish my nephew was there. I wish my nephew was there. Like I was depressed. I was stressed. I stopped. I quit my job. I didn't know what to do. When her daughter showed her the news story about Jason Van Dyke's release, it awakened something in her. She found a way to get in contact with Calloway, said she wanted to help him get justice for Laquan. She's been going to press conferences and rallies along with her mom. Tanisha says she is advocating for Laquan in a way that his mother, her sister Tina Hunter, is unable to do. And she says justice demands that Jason Van Dyke spend much more time in prison. He got to go home to his two kids, and I got to go to a grave site and talk to my little one. Like, that ain't, nah, nah. That three years wasn't enough for me. Tanisha and Tracy Hunter have joined Callaway at multiple events in recent weeks, and the calls for federal charges have gotten louder. Many politicians have added their voices. The NAACP has called on U.S. Attorney General Merrick Garland to get involved. 
we wanted to understand a little more about what a federal investigation would do at this point, and if it's even a realistic possibility. So I talked to Roy L. Austin. He's a former assistant U.S. Attorney General who worked in the Civil Rights Division of the Department of Justice. So, Roy, activists are calling for federal charges, but we've all heard the term double jeopardy. Why wouldn't that apply here? Uh, Quite simply because the federal government is allowed to prosecute a case after a state does. Um, The uh, most uh, well-known example of this in the civil rights space is the Rodney King case, where the state went first and the federal government went second. By law, the federal government is allowed to, and it does not violate double jeopardy. And... How would federal charges differ than the charges he's already been convicted of? So most likely this would be charged under, if it were to be charged, would be charged under 18 United States Code 242, which is a violation of rights uh, under color of law. And, And just break that down for us a little bit more. What does that mean? It Basically, people have a right to live. And if a law enforcement officer in particular, uh, takes away that right through an act like shooting and killing someone, that is a violation of federal law. Um, And then they could be prosecuted by the federal courts. The evidence would not be significantly different from a state trial. So what kinds of things do federal authorities consider when trying to make a decision about whether or not they want to bring charges? Practically, it means how serious is this? Is, is really the practical. Is, is this something that really rises to the level that you want a, a federal government to weigh in as opposed to a state or local government weighing in? So how likely do you think it is that federal authorities will bring new charges? So I really don't know. And the ultimate question for the federal government is, is three years and some months sufficient punishment for a murder? Uh, and especially this murder which on top of the murder, there was also lying that was involved here. My gut is that the federal government would step in, but you wish they would have done so sooner and not because of uh, the the outcry that they are currently seeing. Now, as you mentioned, there's increasing political pressure for federal charges. Does that play a role in decision-making? Look, squeaky wheels matter. Now, I think that it forces a decision. Ultimately, I think Attorney, Gar- Attorney General Garland uh, is going to make a decision based on the facts, not based on the fact that people are, are angry. But you, you can't ignore the fact that uh, making noise, making it clear that you are unsatisfied or unhappy um, in a way that attracts public attention certainly influences the federal government to respond Uh, and to at least explain why it will or why it will not take a certain action. If the feds were going to bring charges against Van Dyke, why hasn't it happened yet? It's been eight years since the shooting. I have no confidence in the prior administration and how it uh, handled police violence. So you're really looking at the relatively short period of time that Attorney General Garland has been in his position. Uh, And I think it is fair to say for him and his team's decision um, that it hasn't been uh, all that long um, and that, you know, a decision uh, will come and and we we will hear one way or another which way they go. 
Roy, is there any time sensitivity around potential federal charges? Is there is there a limit to how long this can linger on? Actually, there is not. So in a death-resulting situation, um, there is no statute of limitations. So the federal government could bring charges uh, whenever they want to. Activists are calling for federal charges in this case. How much of a difference does that make when there's an outcry from a, from a community looking for additional redress from the federal government? Look, I, th- I think it's always important when people speak up, when people protest, when people march. I don't think it changes the ultimate decision, but I think it forces the government to respond. And I think that's the case here where Attorney General Garland will respond to the outcry. But I think the decision, certainly by this administration, will be made based on the facts as they see them. What concerns do you have about the fact that from administration to administration, the response of the DOJ can vary so widely to police violence? It's horrible, to be perfectly honest with you. You want your department, U.S. Department of Justice to be uh, above um, reproach. You want these decisions to be made based on the facts, regardless who the office holder is. And I honestly think through Republican and Democratic administration, that has largely been the case until the Trump administration, where sadly uh, decisions were made based on po- politics in a way that I've never seen done before in a Department of Justice in which I am proud to have served in. If you've listened to other episodes of this podcast, then you probably remember one of our regular guests, Sharon Mitchell. He used to be the director of the Illinois Justice Project. That's a criminal justice reform advocacy group. He's now the Cook County Public Defender, and we wanted to get his take on this moment. So, Sharon, it's been a while since we've spoken to each other, but I'm curious what your thoughts are on Van Dyke's release. You know, I have so many thoughts, uh, so... uh, Bear with me here. You know, I, I think the first thing is that I just want to acknowledge the incredible pain uh, that this brings to communities who live with a system that is so incredibly punitive. You know, here in Illinois, we have a system where in a few years, about 30% of the prison population will be elderly. People are serving incredibly long sentences um, for the same offenses that uh, Mr. Van Dyke was found guilty of and offenses below that. So for people who live that every day, there is so much pain um, in this outcome. But what do you what do you make of this push to get federal charges filed against Van Dyke? You know, I'm so torn, right? Because on one hand, I know that my communities won't be safer. Like I, I won't live in a safer community because Jason Van Dyke spends decades in federal prison. Uh, My communities won't be policed better because somebody spends decades in prison. You know, we know that longer sentences don't keep us safer. However, I have to acknowledge the pain. So I'm torn. I truly am. 
When you think about what's transpired in Chicago since Jason Van Dyke was was convicted, how do you think Chicago's approach to policing and police accountability have changed, if at all? We have taken steps in the right direction, but I'd be lying to you, Jen, if I thought that we have taken critical steps. We are far away from what our communities deserve. They deserve to be both safe and policed constitutionally and fairly, and and that work continues. What about the city itself? How do you think it's changed over the past few years? You know, everybody talks about Chicago and talks about violence, and, and that is clearly something that is on the hearts and minds of every Chicagoan. Um, I hate to say that I don't think that the Van Dyke incident has had a lasting impact on the way Chicago works. Um, it's sad that we deal with death on such a regular basis that this incident can fade into the ether. I do think that this new news has re-energized conversations. And I continue to be hopeful that organizers and advocates and community members can continue to push for a better world, a world, again, that is safer, but also is free from the type of police violence that you saw in that video. Many Chicago police officers say they've been under attack for the last few years. Um, They've been the subject of many protests. Many have been retiring from the department. Violence is surging in the city. And many officers say morale has never been so low. If Van Dyke is indicted on federal charges and convicted, do you think that would mean anything for policing in Chicago? You know, I think that there are lots of police officers that believe that they are under attack. I I think that's real. What I struggle with is that what people are asking for, the majority of people are asking for, is not extreme, is not radical. And I wonder how much of this pain is kind of worked up. You know, we've treated for a long time police as a whole as really a deity. And and, and we should be respectful of this profession. I think we should. But the reality of the situation is that we have a duty to ensure that, that policing is done in a fair manner. And if the effort to make sure policing is done in a fair manner, is perceived as a war on the police, well, we got a problem. And I truly believe that there are lots of police officers out there that may not get reported on, right, that understand. They're like, yeah, we have to be held accountable if we do something wrong. And I worry sometimes that those voices, that's not a sexy take. That the sexy take is, oh my God, 
police officers are leaving by the droves. And there are forces that are taking advantage of that narrative, right? To push their own political game. Jennifer Blagg has heard about the calls for federal charges against Van Dyke now that he's getting out of prison. She's an attorney and represented Van Dyke in the sentencing phase of his trial. She says putting him through another trial and potentially another prison term would not serve justice. Not only would it be unfair for Jason, it would set a dangerous precedent for any future defendant in Jason's position, right? So a jury heard Jason's case, a jury in Cook County. A jury found that he acted out of fear, an unreasonable fear, but true fear nonetheless. That was second-degree murder. He was sentenced in accordance with that verdict, right? He got the minimum. He didn't get the minimum. He could have gotten probation. He got a significant sentence and served that time. And so now that he's getting out of prison, to say, okay, well, we don't agree with that verdict. We want to do over in federal court, I think sets a dangerous, dangerous precedent. Black says returning Van Dyke to prison would also be inconsistent with the activist goals of criminal justice reform. The legislature's created laws, right? And the, and the law says... If you're guilty of second-degree murder, this is how you're sentenced, and this is how you serve your time, and this is how you get good time credit, right? An important point, I think, to make in this case is if you read the headlines, it's like, Jason Van Dyke serves only half his time. Well, it's true he served half the sentence he was given, but what isn't mentioned is that every defendant in Illinois who is convicted of second-degree murder gets day-for-day good time credit. So Jason was actually treated differently than no one else, and in fact— He was treated worse than the typical prisoner because he was in solitary confinement for the majority of his time in custody. Black says that isolation was for Van Dyke's protection after a beating by other inmates. He didn't have the opportunity to interact with other individuals. And there are studies showing what solitary confinement does to you, and it's not a good thing. So my overall point is he was treated the same as everyone else. That's what the activists want right, is all defendants to be treated equally. And to ask for him to be treated differently sets a precedent down the road for someone the activists would be outraged about if they got treated like they're seeking Jason to be treated. When you try to put all the wrongs of the world on one man, it doesn't solve the problem, which is the history of how African and black and brown people have been treated by people in power. Illinois Governor J.B. Pritzker said Van Dyke would go from prison to a halfway house. Black declined to name the location or talk about the Van Dyke family's preparations for the transition. Obviously, with this much outrage focused on one person, someone could decide to do something to harm Jason. It would be a concern if I was his loved one. We reached out to Dan Herbert. He was Van Dyke's attorney through the trial. He declined our invitation to talk about the case. We also reached out to the Fraternal Order of Police Lodge that represents Chicago cops. That union paid for Van Dyke's defense. The union's president did not respond. And we called former police union president Kevin Graham. He wouldn't discuss the case publicly with us at the request of Van Dyke's wife. Van Dyke's release from prison brings Laquan McDonald's story back to the forefront again, at least for the moment. But the issues in this story have never receded. Poverty, violence, race, policing, who we allow our systems to fail. Those issues, Laquan McDonald's story, 
They resonate especially deeply for Pastor Marshall Hatch and his congregation on the city's west side. Chip Mitchell visited Hatch this week in the sanctuary of his church. That space includes a permanent reminder of Laquan McDonald's life. Hatch's congregation, it's New Mount Pilgrim Missionary Baptist, it has this huge limestone church built more than 100 years ago for a Catholic parish. A receptionist led me to his office at the back, and then he showed me around the building. We're going to enter the sanctuary. It's been one of the places on the west side where a lot of the funerals and, and big events otherwise have been held here, sort of developed a reputation of a civil rights church. We stood at the back of the sanctuary and talked about Van Dyke's trial. Hatch was there almost every day. Yeah, well, you know, having sat through the trial, there was an innocence to Laquan McDonald's story. The truth is he was just looking for a place to sleep that night. You see a kid lost. You see a kid grieving. You see a kid homeless. You see a kid failed by family, by the system. And you see a ward of the state who was killed by an officer of the state. And Jason Van Dyke deserved to have been treated like any other murderer. And surprisingly, the citizens, you know, they were just very normal people. The jury. The jury. I was really surprised. They seemed to have just really have done their jobs. The judge did not do his. He, in effect, uh, gave much less time that I think the conviction wanted. And now that, you know, Van Dyke is getting ready to walk free, it's a real punch in the gut. And I think that when people see him actually get out and go on with enjoying his life, it's going to say in communities like this that obviously when it comes to this system, black lives don't matter much. Some of Laquan McDonald's relatives are saying it's time to move on, and they're not actually calling for federal charges now that He's about to leave prison. Mm-hmm. What do you make of that? I think everybody wants to respect the family, but this story is larger than them. Laquan McDonald, he has become a symbol, a symbol of all of the young men in these communities who never had a chance. Family has failed them. Government has failed them. Child welfare system has failed them. And now law enforcement and the criminal justice system has ultimately failed Laquan McDonald. And I think all of us, we have the capacity to feel deeply his loss, even though we're not family members because of what it says about our community and our society. Partway into our conversation, Hatch takes me over to the west side of the sanctuary to look up at a stained glass window. I've heard about this window, but hadn't actually seen it. It's one of three huge circular windows Hatch's congregation has redone to represent black spirituality and civil rights. This was dedicated in, I believe, February of 2019 for African American History Month. Right near the time of the sentencing. Right near the time of the sentencing. It has a center image of an African Christ leading children back into an African village. And it's surrounded by images of the four girls from Birmingham, Alabama, 1963, 16th Street Baptist Church, and then five victims of urban violence here in Chicago. And one of the images they chose, you see right here, is Laquan McDonald. And the young people really, it was important to them that Laquan McDonald's image hung in a holy place. 
young people have been traumatized by the violence. We just had a funeral of a 15-year-old who was senselessly killed. The funeral was right here three days ago. Young people flooded in here and were able to speak words of uh, life and also to challenge the community from this holy place. And so this window is one of the ways that young people are trying to heal by saying that his life mattered. Looking up at his image there in that beautiful stained glass window that was put up right near the time of the sentencing, when you think back at that time, where has Chicago come? Well, you know, it was a time of hopefulness as if finally we had had some kind of consensus on decency in this city for creating a city of, of law and order and fairness and equity. And so it's disappointing to be back here in 2022 and to have to admit that we probably have not made much progress at all on any of the issues of justice and equity and police accountability. Seeming victories can easily be snatched away. The price of any measure of justice is obviously, as has been said, eternal vigilance and dogged determination and resilience. The blood of the innocent still cry from the ground and we can't rest and we have to keep fighting. Shots is a production of WBEZ Chicago and the Chicago Tribune. This episode was produced by Joe Dassault. Our reporting team includes Shannon Heffernan, Chip Mitchell, and Patrick Smith. Jennifer Tanaka and Mike Lansu are our digital editors. Our senior editor is Rob Wildeboer. Kevin Dawson and Brendan Banizak are our executive producers. Tracy Brown is WBEZ's chief content officer. Our thanks to the WBEZ Newsroom, whose reporting was instrumental to this series. I'm Jen White. Thanks for listening. Now, more than ever, facts matter. That's why the journalists at the Chicago Tribune are committed to quality journalism, relentlessly pursuing the truth, and providing you with the stories that impact your community, as well as your daily life. Get fact-based journalism and support the future of investigative reporting like 16 Shots by subscribing to the Chicago Tribune today. Visit chicagotribune.com slash 16 Shots for a special subscription offer just for listeners of this podcast.